much once again for gathering us together as family in the unity of the faith this evening. Thank you for evenings like this, evenings that you've ordained from eternity past to our benefit, Father. Thank you for the completed canon of Scripture, which is really truth that sets us free. Thank you for sending your Son, most of all, to cancel out that debt, to make an evening like this a reality even. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why the apostles so encouraging? <clears throat> By grace they were prepared. Part 19. Again, I mentioned this before. Prayer. Tonight there are a lot of moving parts. Um, it just means that when we're coming out of a deep dive of more than two months of sidebars and special lessons and uh, what have you, and we're having to regain our posture, if you would, in our primary course of study, why are the apostles so encouraging? It makes sense that there is a lot of moving parts because we're trying to get uh, and keep hold of some of the pearls that we were given along the way over the course of those two plus months. Um, and we're also trying to regain our footing uh, so that we can sort of press on with part 19 of this tremendously edifying series. So before we head on back completely to why the Apostle is so encouraging, we need to finish up a review, especially this last little bit the Spirit added on Tuesday with respect to suffering, discipline, and the consistency of God the Father with the Son. And it was interesting how he brought those things together, the consistency of God the Father and the Son in light of suffering and discipline. Go to Hebrews 6, 9. Hebrews 6, verse 9. <clears throat> so we'll start here with our review. This should look familiar from Tuesday. A lot of this should look familiar from Tuesday's lesson and beyond. Hebrews 6, verse 9. <clears throat> but, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, we're going to talk about both of those topics this evening, through faith and patience inherit the promises. Up here on the board, just to get us going, this phrase, through faith, we see it uh, fairly often in the New Testament. Could there be a larger statement regarding our lives? Just dwell on it. Through faith. Could there be a larger statement regarding our lives? Could there be a more potent remedy to our ailments? Is there a greater ointment for our disciplinary wounds? Again, through faith, could there be a larger statement regarding our own lives? Could there be a more potent remedy to our ailments? Is there a greater ointment for our disciplinary wounds? The answer to all three, of course, is no. So just think about I was thinking about this as 
the pastor here, how, how many times the passage or the verse James 4, 6 has been quoted from this pulpit just over the past year? God gives grace to who? The humble. I mean, it's not a broken record, but that shouldn't even matter. I mean, that phrase has come up so often. And here we are again, uh, for obvious reasons, James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. So I've not been uh, keeping count, but the direct and indirect uh, references would be in the hundreds at least, uh, if not more. We receive uh, faith by grace. So says Holy Scripture. We receive when we're humble. We receive grace or faith, excuse me, by grace. Faith is a grace gift. Remember that. So says Holy Scripture. We know that we are uh, even saved through faith. Go to Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8. We know that we begin our spiritual walks by being saved through faith. So this concept of through faith is a big one, a lofty concept. Uh, and as we just read, could there be a larger statement regarding our lives? Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God. Faith is a gift. If you don't have it, you must be arrogant. Or God's holding out for a while. But regarding salvation, right from the get-go, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you can't manufacture faith in your own soul. It's a gift. And as Paul wrote extensively about, uh, in the New Testament, not only are we saved through faith, we are sanctified experientially just the same. Go to Romans 12.3. Romans 12, verse 3. So this is a big concept, folks, through faith. And remember that faith is a grace gift. That's the point the Spirit's making here. Romans 12.3 For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Who gives faith? God gives faith at salvation, and then furthermore, at sanctification, what we would call theologically either progressive or experiential sanctification. It's always through faith. So God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So regarding this recurring theme in our studies over the past year or so, God gives grace to the humble. The conclusion is that the humble receive faith, both at salvation and beyond. The humble receive faith because faith is a grace gift and God gives grace to the humble. Paul wrote about this to believers in the church at Galatia, this idea of being saved and then sanctified. I'll give you the New Living Translation up here on the board. Galatians 3.1 Oh foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had been or had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. 
How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? In other words, why are you trying to manufacture things, including faith? Faith cannot be manufactured. It is given solely uh, on God's good will to the humble because God gives grace to the humble. This is what we're learning. So this, is, this idea of through faith and humility begins at salvation but continues throughout our spiritual lives. Regarding Paul's admonition to the Galatians, we have uh, been receiving this same type of wisdom from the Spirit. That is to say that God gives us faith even so far as faith in himself. God gives us faith even so far as faith in himself. These are some of the things that have been impressed on us from this pulpit. For example, we've been given a pair of principles worth reiterating. One is from Sunday and one is from Tuesday. The one from Sunday reads, to understand the truth is to understand the person of Christ. To understand the truth is to understand the person of Christ. From Tuesday we got, to understand the person of Christ is to understand your heavenly Father. Why? Because the Father and the Son are one by the accord of the Son himself, as we'll see in Scripture. God is never going to give us faith that produces inconsistent results. God is never going to give us faith that produces inconsistent results. In other words, if he gives us faith in the Son, he gives us faith in the Father, and those two things are never inconsistent with each other. The Father's not one way and the Son's another way. The Son's not one way and the Father's a different way. You see, neither is the Holy Spirit. This is what we call, remember about six months ago, I taught you about unity. This idea of unity, even in the Trinity. So God is the giver of faith, and therefore he's not going to give faith that is ever inconsistent, even across the so-called persons of the Godhead. For example, as we noted on Tuesday evening, Jesus is quoted in Scripture as stating that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, for they are one. And I just alluded to this. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Go to John 14.8. John 14.8. So just sort of hold on. I know he's just giving you sort of carte blanche doctrine right now. We're going to bring it together before the close of the message. John 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're not inconsistent. We're always consistent. If you have faith in me, you have faith in the Father. If you have faith in the Father, you have faith in me. Again, the pair of principles being amplified again up here on the board. To understand the truth is to understand the person of Christ. And then, of course, to understand the person of Christ is to understand your heavenly Father. People, here's the problem. 
People aren't humble enough to submit to the truth in the Word of God. That's a fact. That I am absolutely convinced of. Remember that one principle I had? People just don't want the truth at the end of the day. What is that actually a function of? It's a function of lack of humility. They don't have the humility to actually submit to the Word of God. So that's a fact. And because as a result, they lack faith, they lack the faith that reconciles Christ and His Father in perfect unity. And so this is the problem. They do as all fleshly people do. They invent things. When you lack faith, when you start saying, well, the Father's this way and the Son's this way and God the Holy Spirit's this way, and they have these sort of disparate um, doctrines tied to them, uh, what happens is you've now got disunity in the Trinity, which is actually the antithesis of unity, which is God. Jesus Christ has said in print, I and the Father are one. The, God, and the, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C, right? That means they're all the same. So people that are arrogant lack the faith that reconciles Christ to his Father in perfect unity. And so when this happens, what they do is they invent things. I heard a story recently about a woman who boiled down the distinction. Check this out. The distinction between the Old Testament and New Testament, you ready? This is how this goes when people are arrogant. Oh, the Old Testament is the wrathful God, and the New Testament is the loving God. Where is that in Scripture? Have you not read Romans 1? How about 118? For the wrath of God. What are we talking about here? Seriously, what are we talking about here? Because, look, as convenient as I suppose this might be for some people, it's complete garbage. Are we to say that God in the Old Testament, maybe God the Father, since He seems to be more of the emphasis, than God the Son in the New Testament, that somehow God the Father is now the wrathful side of the Godhead, and God the Son is somehow just the, the loving side, and these two are forever separated? Is this what we're supposed to do in our laziness? and our lack of humility, it's complete garbage. As convenient as it is for some people to digest because they're lazy, and I'm looking around, where is everybody? I don't know. But it's convenient for some reason for some people not to be here. That's garbage too. As convenient as I suppose this might be for some people, it's complete garbage but I'm not surprised as I see similar situations constructed by mankind between Jesus and his Father, as if they were two separate minds. This is what the Spirit's been working out as sort of an undercurrent in our lessons over the past few months now. He's saying, let us not forget that these, God, these people, these persons in the Godhead have the same mind. They're never inconsistent. There might be an expression of the Father here in Scripture and an expression of the Son there and an expression of God the Holy Spirit there. So what? They're never disunified. They're always unity. Some say, oh, well, Jesus Christ is, you know, grace and truth, so he must be more grace. No, he's not. He's not more grace than the Father. That's ridiculousness. But that would make it easier, isn't it? It makes our doctrines easier. It makes our lives easier because we're arrogant and we lack humility to submit to the Word of God, which says you're supposed to study the Word of God diligently to show yourself approved, right? 
How many people do that? I don't know. Where is everybody? I don't know. Where is everyone? What does the Bible say about gathering together? Do not forsake it, correct? Where is everyone? I don't know. Do you understand? Those, that's the fruit of arrogance. And I'm not saying there aren't legitimate excuses out there, because there are. People are sick. But you get my point. This don't, so nobody's immune to any of this. So stop, you know, some of you are all like, oh, I, man, I already know who needs to hear this lesson. Yeah, you're, 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 you're making the noise in your brain right now. That's the person. But these are the manifestations of arrogance in people. They start making these divisions between Jesus and his Father as if they were two separate minds. Some suppose that the Father is all wrath and discipline and the Son is all love and grace. But that's not true. For they are both all the things listed. All the things listed. I believe it's gotten so bad in Christian circles that people refuse to believe that Christ would ever even want to discipline his own. I've heard people say this publicly, that Christ is just so loving and so gushy that, you know, we'll leave, he'll leave the wrath up to his father, but he'll just be this sort of teddy bear type individual that only loves. Where does that take us? Well, first of all, it says that he's a liar because he said he and the father are one. Again, that's garbage as a result of man's arrogant inventions. Scripture clearly teaches otherwise. This is where Tuesday's lesson parked itself, using the topic of suffering as the catalyst to understanding the greater principles that both the Father and Son love and discipline the same. Go to Hebrews 12.7. Hebrews 12.7. See, I, don't, I, I believe that you, to understand suffering, you have to understand the, these greater principles. Hebrews 12, 7. You're never going to get the, the doctrine of suffering correct in your souls, which means you're probably going to whine and moan the, your whole life until you actually humble up. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Good question. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Why? Because the father that loves his children disciplines them. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been uh, trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That was part of uh, Tuesday's, uh, the gist of Tuesday evening's message. Go to verse 28 now. So what does the scripture tell us? It says those of us who have been trained by suffering actually benefit. It yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I'll get to a, 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 a sort of a, not an epiphany, but I'll get you, I'll get in a conclusion to you here in a moment on that statement. That at the end of it, at the end of suffering, the person who suffered 
at the hands of the, the disciplinary person actually is in a state of peace, is actually rewarded. We'll get to that. Verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, even for his painful discipline at times, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Remember that Jesus, our great shepherd, is God, which is why he not only carries a staff to gently guide us, he carries a rod to discipline us. <coughs> Does Jesus love you? <clears throat> but yet he disciplines you? So maybe you should embrace the things he's doing for you. Maybe you should understand what we just read in Hebrews, that discipline is for your own good. And the end result actually produces a peaceful existence and righteousness. Up here on the board, embracing suffering. Our Father's loving discipline is painful and good. Be thankful with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We just read that in Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. And just an analogy if you're a parent, you know what I'm about to say is true. You ready? Children, now we're all children of God, so, but here's the analogy. Children secretly thirst for guidelines and discipline. Let me say it again. Children secretly thirst for guidelines and discipline. Why? Because deep down, they know they need them. Deep down, they know they need them. Matter of fact, they crave them. They may buck it, but at the end of the day, that's what they want from their parents. They may argue and be the typical adolescent the whole way, but at the end of the day, that's exactly what they want. Why? Because God built them that way. That's the point. We all forget, don't we? We think somehow that even the unbelievers are somehow disjoint. That, are, that somehow they're made differently. They weren't made differently. They were made the same. And God placed certain things, including a good conscience or a conscience inside of them, a morality, a base morality, as we'll see in a moment. So they know they need guidelines and discipline. They crave it. They just don't say it. You might ask, especially, especially since I brought up unbelievers, especially of unbeliever children, how can this be? Easy. The Bible says that even unbelievers have been given a conscience that God has placed in them to convict them of right and wrong. Go to Romans 2.14. Romans 2.14. Even unbelievers have been given this thing. Don't believe me? Then believe Scripture. This is why Paul says you're a bunch of liars who say there is no God. Because you know, and I know that you know, that God exists. And so you have to raise up lofty speculations and inventions to, to push that thing away. But as I've taught you, it's a daily task to push down the knowledge of God. Why? Because God created people with a knowledge of Him, with an ability to understand Him, to know Him. And they say what? I don't want to know you. I don't want your son. You can keep it. Romans 2.4 For when Gentiles who do not have the law do how? Instinctively the things of the law 
These, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Where did that come from? That came from God. That came from their creator. Where did it come from? Where did this base morality come from? It came from God. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So just as a side note, you should have received an email from Monica that I asked her to send out to all of you regarding that particular passage. I suggest you all read it. I'm not saying you have to agree with everything that that author says, but it certainly will make you think, especially on this topic. If you haven't read it yet, please read it. Uh, as soon as possible. It should take you, I don't know, 15 minutes. The point the Spirit's making here is simple, though. That is that children secretly thirst for guidelines and discipline. Deep down, they know they need these things. As we just noted, Holy Scripture states that even unbelievers are given a morality by God. Therefore, if you have a baseline morality then you also know the difference between right and wrong, right? That's what morality does. This, I've, as I've taught in the past, is a very function of the human conscience. What is the function of the human conscience? To distinguish between right and wrong. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit actually convicts the human conscience on your behalf of what's right and wrong, even spiritually, at an even higher level. But as we just learned, as Paul wrote in Romans 2, even unbelievers have a baseline morality which means they understand what? Right and wrong. Which means they understand what? They deserve discipline, or they don't. So concentrate. If your conscience convicts you of something wrong, in the God of the universe, the same one who gave you the moral law of your conscience, for some reason didn't discipline you. Let's just suppose this for a second. So the God of the universe gives you creates you, uh, convicts you of something wrong through a conscience and a morality that he has given you, and then he does nothing about it. What would be the message he'd be sending you? So he gives you all these things. He, he reveals to you right and wrong, and then he does nothing about it. How secure are you going to be in your existence, knowing there's a God? Just think about that. What's the message he'd be sending you? It'd be the same one that awful earthly fathers send to their own children when they refuse to discipline them. That he doesn't care. That he doesn't care. I wrote this on uh, social network. This was Facebook uh, this afternoon when I was studying this. If both you and your child understand that something they've done is wrong and you don't discipline them accordingly, the message you're sending is that you don't care. That hurts much worse than any discipline you could have doled out. Let me read that again. Because some of you are children in this case where your parents just proved they didn't really care. And some of you are parents who have stumbled in this case. There's no condemnation. We're just trying to learn. And we're going to elevate back up to the spiritual, of course, because this supposition, this fake supposition that God 
might do this would leave us anxious and needy. If both you and your child understand that, you've, that they've done something wrong and you don't discipline them accordingly, the message you're sending is that you don't care. That hurts much worse than any discipline you could have doled out. You know, it's not loving to disregard sinful behavior. That's not loving. Some people have misconstrued that as mercy. You know, the little Jesus, the one that's all cuddly like a teddy bear, oh, he never disciplines me. His word never convicts me because Jesus loves me, right? That's not love. That's some other thing. That's some invention by, by man that wants to believe Jesus isn't the same as the so-called wrathful God of the universe, you know, of the Old Testament. But he is the same. You see what the Spirit's saying here? You get these things straight, suffering, understanding, and even embracing suffering becomes a layup. Because you know that God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit want what's best for you. So let me continue. It's not loving to disregard sinful behavior. It's not loving for God's justice to be somehow trampled by some perversion of mercy. It's not loving to send the message that you don't care enough to correct someone you love like your child. That's not love. Oh, well, here's a little gift. Love you. No, you don't. You're just shoving me off like you've done for 30 years. You're just shoving me off. You've proven time and again you don't care. You don't give a crap about me. Imagine if God was like that. I'm going to give you the, the faculties to, to understand with a conscience between right and wrong, and then you're going to know when you did something wrong, you're going to know that I know it, and I'm going to do nothing about it. What are you going to say about that relationship? How's that father? Imagine if our father in heaven was like that. Imagine if Jesus Christ was like that. Where's the love? That's not love. That's the whole point. But that's the Jesus, the little Jesus from another spirit that many of you tolerate. The point here is that with the proper perspective on suffering, when a person receives it, they actually embrace it. Up here on the board, embracing suffering. Suffering is a primary component of sanctification. Think about it. Jesus suffered on our behalf for our positional sanctification. We also suffer in time as a function of our experiential sanctification. Since every form of sanctification is good, we ought to rejoice in it. Seems like suffering is a big portion of sanctification, doesn't it? But what if God was too weak? What if all these lazy, arrogant, idiot Christians were right? Here's what we got from Tuesday. He wants us to see and believe in the moments of pain that his discipline, though painful, is loving and good. It seems odd to say something like, you know, embrace your suffering. Sounds kind of funny. But it's really not odd at all when you understand your prototype. Go to Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12.1. <clears throat> the same one who leads you, the same one who shepherds you with the staff and the rod, the same one who disciplines you when the Word of God punches you in the forehead, 
Maybe in the throat. Oh. <laughs> Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, how, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't quit, in other words. Quitting would be bad, right? If you don't quit, then you're going to what? Suffer. Because Jesus said, you've got to pick up your cross. You're going to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross. Cross is painful. I don't see Jesus, I don't see any scripture that says Jesus was smiling on the cross. It was really painful, but yet there's joy. It's that same kind of inner thing as peace that I wrote about in my latest blog. So while it may seem odd to say embrace your suffering, the point is akin to the one I made in this most recent blog I just alluded to, Burned Out Happiness. Here's a, an excerpt from that blog up here on the board burned out happiness. True happiness is a reality that may or may not be evidenced on its possessor's face. However, God has placed it there as a function of peace. As a function of peace, stimulated from deep inside them, and it is worth rejoicing over because it is from Him. It's the same idea, my friends. The same idea being able to rejoice or embrace this suffering, to have a joy set before you. That's the same, that's the sister to having a peace in your soul. You may not be smiling when you're carrying a cross, right? You may not be smiling every day. You may not have that worldly happiness that every punk out there, idiot out there is chasing like a silly little rabbit. You may not have that. I'm serious. You may not have that, quote, happiness. You have something much more transcendent. That's what Jesus had when he went to the cross. A joy set before him. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that we ought to be smiling all the time. But you'd think, looking at some Christians, that's exactly what the Bible says. But they're the phonies. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that we ought to be smiling all the time. Last I checked, this wasn't true for Jesus or his apostles, just saying. What's important, as James stated in the book after his name, is that we are pleasing to the Lord. That's what's important. And if it means we have to suffer, then so be it. And after the pattern of the Lord being uh, pleased to crush his only begotten son for the sake of good, we ought to suffer each in our own ways while carrying our own crosses. And we must conclude that it pleases God to discipline us through suffering. Why? Because He knows what it produces. It produces peace. It produces perseverance. It produces character. It produces hope. It produces endurance. It produces perseverance. It produces a lot of things. It produces, let, let's put it this way, it produces that little thing we call security in our Father in Heaven. The thing we wouldn't have, as we just discussed ten minutes ago, if He didn't follow through with His discipline. 
we would be missing that. It would have been better if he never gave us a conscience to be able to decide between right and wrong. But he did. And so he disciplines us. And that should please us as well. Our job in the meantime, as James says up here on the board, James 4, 14 to 15, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. That's it. You don't even know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. So just live for today. I just had that discussion with someone uh, last night. Just live for today. Stop worrying about stuff you have literally no control over. People spend, I was thinking of a way to say this the right way. Maybe this is the right way. You know, every day you're presented with a thousand bridges to cross. But God only asks you to cross one at a time, right? So why are you worried about the other 999? Worry about that bridge when it's time to cross it. Stop worrying, oh my God, this could happen. This could really happen. So, 99% of the time, it never happens. Isn't that magical? It's unbelievable. You wasted your entire life. You're supposed to be right here, peace, joy, carrying across these transcendent things, and you're living out here in a, in a time that doesn't even exist yet to you. And you're dragging the worries of that thing that doesn't even exist, which means it's not even real, back into your existence today and suffering unnecessarily. Self-induced. It's idiotic, isn't it? I would argue that's how most people, especially in uh, Massachusetts, that's why it's a bunch of mass holes, they're all living out here. I'm serious. They're all living over here instead of in the moment. Because Satan in the world system says you've got to live out here. You've got to be afraid of what you don't have today because you can either lose it or you might not attain it or you might not measure up to someone's else. The Bible is really simple. You don't even know what tomorrow's like. So cross that. If something's bothering you, I'm speaking to your soul on behalf of spirit. If some, something is bothering you right now, if you dragged it in the church with you, and it's been nagging, you know how it percolates up every so often, you're like, get away. Drop it. Cross that bridge if, if, and when it's necessary. I would be willing to bet, chances are, it's not even going to happen. You are worried about something that's not even real, and it never will be real. But, oh my God, oh my God, what if I, what if I run into them? I'm just going to stay in the house. What? So you're not going to go out now because you're afraid of running into some idiot. Yep, it could happen. I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to start shopping instead of Trukies. I'm going to start shopping at Stop and Shop. I'm going to spend the extra money to go to Heartland or whatever the heck that place is, more expensive place. What's the expensive place? Market basket, a pantry, or whatever those highfalutin joints are. I'm going to do that. I'm going to change my lifestyle because I might run into this person. Don't worry about it. Cross that bridge when it happens. Chances are, eh. As the Spirit taught on Tuesday, I'm starting to digress. Go to 1 Peter 4.19. Here's the the collective message that the Spirit's been building to for the first 40 minutes of class. He's bringing it all together. 1 Peter 4.19. 
Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, see how it's according to the will of God, though, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. If that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. If I suffer, I don't care. For the joy set before me, I'll carry that cross. And I trust you. I trust you. You know why I trust you? Not just because I've seen the blessings. You ready? Listen. Not just because I've seen you bless my life. I've seen blessings in my life. People love to focus on that stuff. But that you're a complete God. That even when I stop carrying my cross, so to speak, for a time, when my eyes are diverted, you whack me upside the head. I know that you're not lopsided. So I put my faith in you. Because you are faithful. If I'm moving on the path, you encourage me to go straight. If I fall off the path, you hit me. The staff, the rod. I don't want a weak God. I want a God that does discipline me because it makes me more secure. It gives me that peace we read about in Hebrews 12. It gives me that transcendent peace. It allows that joy to percolate up as I'm carrying my own cross because I know that this is the road that I'm supposed to be on. And I know that if I veer off, he's going to, if I'm humble, he's going to correct me and I'm going to, Reorient. See, Satan lies and says it's all about just, you know, there's no discipline. It's, there's, it's just this lovey-dovey crap. Let's close out a review this way. Say, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Go there, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. I know I'm speaking loftily, if that's a word. I think it is. That's on purpose. Remember I told you a lot of moving parts. He's trying to pull some things together. Uh, we have artifacts from our last two months, including this thing on suffering. But if you learn to look at the big picture, you know that suffering was just that catalyst. It was one more thing that he was using to say, look at this big picture. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Some of you are like, yeah, that's my coworker. Concerning this, <laughs> concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, which means you're living for someone else, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So that's our review. That covers our review. So it's time to get back to our primary course of study. We left off in the closing moments here. We left off with why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 18, on April 25th. So we're, again, we're coming back to this place. On Sunday we stepped into this a little with a little extra content or context from our recent lessons. Let's grab that context again and then press on. Go to Matthew 7.21. <clears throat> Matthew 7.21.
So we started this good work on Sunday. The Lord had a little extra to say on suffering on Tuesday, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Up here in the board, he gave us this on Sunday. I never knew you. These are Jesus' words. He is saying that he doesn't acknowledge some people as his own. He is the great shepherd, and he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. John 10, 27. This is an intimacy that doesn't exist with others. That's this version, this context of knowing. Go to John 10, 27. John 10, 27. So this is how Jesus has chosen to explain the intimacy between his own sheep and ones that aren't his. Unbelievers, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We've already noted this verse earlier this evening, up here on the board. I and the Father are one, John 10.30. This not only means... Excuse me, that Jesus Christ is God, it also implies that his mind is intrinsically the same as the mind of his Father. We have the idea of unity in that word one. What the Father wants, the Son wants. What he plans, the Son executes, and the Spirit empowers, such as unity. There's no inconsistency, in other words. And therefore, any faith that we have in these facts are going to be consistent with each other. Once again, we have this continuity between the Father's and the Son's thinking. And for God's children, we have the ability to understand some of this unity and rejoice in the life we've been given. And this was perspective we got on Sunday as well. How about rejoicing in this life we've been given? How about that little thing, that little sidebar he just gave us on Living in the now instead of in the future. Instead of letting the future poison your peace today. There's no good in that ever. Cross the bridge when it's time, if it's ever time. Life is short. It's too short. Ask anyone over the age of 50 years old if this is true. Time seems to accelerate as we get older. Um, Solomon even referred to this. In Ecclesiastes 12, <clears throat> so we ought to make the most of our time as servants of the Lord. The right perspective motivates us to live this way. For example, understanding the big picture. Ecclesiastes 12.1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. So if you're saved, then you are a youth in God's eyes, or at least you have been at some point. We might even consider the apostles as, quote, youthful in God's eyes, even after they were chosen. The point that Solomon was making was that life is short, and we need to take advantage of every second we've been given here on earth. This doesn't mean that we ought to toss out the lives that the Lord 
God has chosen for us to live. For as we've studied in the past, so much of living is simply accepting the life he's given us at face value. This is one of the primary ways that the apostles should encourage us. They just accepted their lots. He said, drop your nets and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Okay. They were far from perfect, but they accepted their calling. And let's be totally honest. They were called to bear a load that most of us can't even fathom. Anybody in here been asked to quit their job and follow Jesus? Nope. Anybody been asked any of the things? How many of you are going to be martyred? Because all but one were. How many of you would be martyred, would stand up? If they said, if you don't denounce Christ right now, we're going to put a stake right through your heart. Right now. How many of you would say, I'm not backing down. Christ is Lord. So kill me if you must. How many people would have the courage to do that? It's a good question. For this fundamental reason, we've been called as a congregation to investigate this here on the board. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared. It doesn't mean that some of those questions I just asked you if they're a no now, if you're being honest, won't be a yes five years from now, or ten years, or, or even next year. Who knows? That's not to say. Because even, even Peter, when queried three times, I don't know him. Seriously? You don't know? All of a sudden you don't know Peter, the rock? Right? So we can be encouraged. We're not perfect. They weren't perfect. But as we continue to learn, they followed him. They were humble in the right ways, I guess, as, as we could say. Back in April, we departed with Peter's famous words, which is really practical. Jesus challenged him. You're going to leave me too. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter's words epitomized one thing that separated the apostles from the rest of Jesus' so-called disciples, some of which weren't yet saved. John 6.64, 1 John 2.19. Humility. They had one thing that was humility. Not always. Doesn't mean they were always humble. Peter comes to mind. Submission and surrender are fruit of humility, the essence of God's grace and salvation. The challenge presented by the Lord Jesus Christ proves the following up here on the board. And you see we're just regaining ourselves from Sunday even. By grace they were prepared. Jesus taught his disciples to have their own convictions. He then gave them his spirit to teach, encourage, and empower this. We all have the word of and the spirit of Christ by grace. I was just thinking as I was saying that, though that article I sent you, I don't want you just to take that guy's word as gold. I want you to listen to what he has to say, challenge yourself with it, and see what you come up with. Do you agree, disagree? Is he right, wrong? You know, it, that's not important. It's not important what he wrote or the fact that I sent it to you. You should know that. That I want you to have your own convictions. I want you to be able to look at someone else's thoughts on a subject and read it and then take it for yourself. If you're too lazy, well, shame on you. That means you're just being lazy. I don't have to read that. 
Nowhere in the Bible does it say I have to try, you know, it says submit to your pastors. If he says read this thing, maybe you should read it. Maybe I'm not an idiot. Maybe God the Holy Spirit is using me a certain way. Maybe you'll believe 50% of it. Maybe you're too immature to understand any of it yet. I don't know, but he told me to send it to you. So you should read it. Amen? Yeah, exactly. That's what it means to follow the authority of a pastor. If I say read something, you should read it. But you know how that goes. Arrogance. Gee, but I'm reading this other book, and I'm like right in the middle of it, and that would like, you know... would disrupt me. Seriously? Don't take up room on my kit. No, I didn't even send you the electronic version. Jesus taught his disciples to have their own convictions. That's all I want for you, honest to goodness. I swear to you. I just want you to have your own convictions. You know why? Because when we arrive at the same place, there's not going to be any discord. If I force you to believe what I believe, or force you to believe what some other guy believes, or this person believes. We're not going to come together at Christ. We're going to come together at a human being. I don't want that. I don't want that for any of you. And, and frankly, neither did Jesus Christ, although coming together at Jesus, he was, would be the one person you could come together with. But nonetheless, he still wanted them to have their own convictions. Up here on the board. Sending the apostles out, Jesus called them, Jesus trained them academically and with on-the-job training. Jesus sent them out. Like all of us, even today, the Lord, our great shepherd, sent his apostles out equipped with the gospel. That was the end goal. And if you understand one thing about your purpose for remaining here on earth after salvation, then may I suggest you understand this up here on the board. I think this is where we ended on Sunday, and I, I'm just going to have to end here because I'm going to get into a completely different topic uh, if I continue. By grace they were prepared. The great work for any believer is to spread the gospel. But that's not something you necessarily can do right out of the gate. Maybe you need to understand people a little bit more. Maybe you need to understand that God's grace is sufficient. Maybe you need to understand that to spread the gospel you're going to have to suffer. Maybe these things have to be sort of wrought in your soul. Maybe he sends you out on little test runs, you know, like a test flight with a new airplane. Go fly it this way. All right, don't fly upside down yet because I can't, you know, you might crash. Go out on a little test flight and come back and let me know what you think. Okay, stretch your wings a little bit more. What do you think now? That's how it goes. But eventually, ultimately, we want to be spreading the gospel. The great work for any believer is to spread the gospel. We all need to be literally changed by grace. This through faith again. It's good that we're ending here. In order to accomplish this good work, Jesus has left his precious salvation ministry to his sheep to carry on. And the beauty of understanding the apostles and watching and reading them, reading about their own trials and tribulations, their strengths, their weaknesses, their humility, their arrogance, is that we can relate to them as human beings. And I always find that encouraging, as do most of you, right? I mean, that's why we have the Bible, that we're able to relate to human beings and be encouraged by them. It's why we gather together. It's why the Bible says, I believe it's Hebrews 3.13, as long as it's called today, encourage one another. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Stop worrying about bridges you're never going to cross. 
How about spending time in the moment, learning to carry a cross with a joy set before you? How about all these things? Do you know those things right when you're saved? No. No. You have to learn. You have to grow up to the fullness of Christ, as the Bible would say. You have to become mature. You have to be completed, as the Bible would say. You have to be sanctified, as a theologian would point to over and over again. It doesn't matter if you have all the words ironed out. God's just trying to grow you up. And we have a loving, gracious, disciplinary God that says, I just want you to go on the way that I'm pointing. I want you to go, as one theologian said, I I think it's MacArthur. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. It's not about perfection, it's about direction. He wants you to keep going in the right direction. Don't worry about being perfect because you're never going to be perfect here on earth. hate to break it to you. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for bringing us back to the simple things in life and keeping everything in perspective, Father, including this big picture. We're just so very grateful for the opportunity to learn this way in a place of peace and quiet that you've ordained for our learning. Father, we ask for traveling mercies as we take this, these things that we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.